Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. As a world-renowned theoretical physicist, Lawrence Krauss has proposed groundbreaking theories about the energy density of space, relativistic quantum fields, and the origins of the universe itself. But he's always had a political side, too. While at Case Western University, he led the initiative for a no-confidence vote against the school's president, and he helped lead the pushback against theories of so-called intelligent design. This week, he got political again with an article in Quillette entitled Racism is Real, But Science Isn't the Problem, in which he takes a dim view to the June 10th Strike for Black Lives event, supported by the American Physical Society and other science groups. In his article, he argues that while American society is full of inequities, science offers a haven from bigotry and shouldn't be used as just another arena for progressive cancel culture. Lawrence Krauss currently serves as president of the Origins Project Foundation and as host of the Origins podcast. He joined me by Skype this week from Oregon. Here are excerpts from our conversation. You write in your article that science unites humanity in a way that is unmatched by any other intellectual endeavor. What do you mean by that? I think if you look at many aspects of our culture, it's kind of an us versus them thing. Certainly religion, for example, separates people into tribes, and politics does. And what science does, in, in I think in a relatively unique way, is maybe because it works through the language of mathematics, which is kind of uni- universal, is it functions, especially in the modern global world, much more effectively if it's global. Large scale, right now, in order to answer the big questions, we generally have to do international projects. And it always amazes me, having been to many meetings and being part of collaborations, how how physicists, which is my area of science, of course, function so effectively where all other aspects of politics, religion, everything else goes goes by the wayside when working on, on, on scientific problems. Because the questions you're looking at, in some sense, are most often, and I'm talking about the hard sciences now, are most often divorced from the foibles of human tragedy. And so it's natural for people to look beyond the things that separate us as humans to try and, to try and answer these questions. Well, as an example of multicultural and multinational collaboration, you talk about the Large Hadron Collider, and you talk about thousands of physicists working there dozens of different countries speaking many languages. It sounds like a United Nations of science. It is. I mean, I spent time there. I worked, I spent a year there and, and, and of course, have many colleagues who work there. And, and um, yeah, there's people from over 100 different countries. There's 10,000 scientists. And, and it really is like the United Nations. And it's, except, unlike the United Nations, there's not a lot of squabbling going on about, about petty things. Uh, and, um, of course, there's, you know, there's rivalries and, 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 it's, and there's politics that goes on at some level, but it is really remarkable how when one's talking about the they have to. The point is there's no choice. It's the same reason that science is so is worth emulating, because it works. Literally, these detectors are the largest instruments that humanity has ever developed. If you ever go there, you feel like Gulliver. 
and yet they have to literally function with hundreds of millions of parts down to the to level of microns or smaller, and different parts of it are built by different groups from different countries, and yet it all works. It really is remarkable, and the same is true nowadays in physics for large collaborations and gravitational waves. And while it's a fortunate part of physics, it's also perhaps an unfortunate part of physics. The idea of a single researcher working alone in his or her laboratory is increasingly rare. You now have publications where the author list is longer than the publication. And and that's okay, but it's required and it functions effectively. So it's it's the norm rather than the exception. Let's talk about the actual operation of experiments because I was briefly a scientist, did a graduate degree in engineering, and did a lot of lab work in the 1990s. And there were certain experiments, this was in the field of pyrometallurgy. You know, once the experiment was going, it was going. And there had to be somebody in attendance for days or sometimes weeks collecting data. This hashtag you described, the strike for black lives, that the American Physical Society embraced. I'm wondering how that interplayed with the actual work of physicists or engineers running day-to-day experiments. Were they expected to stop their experimental work and go home and reflect on black lives? That's an interesting question. The scientific societies, which... To be fair, there's no science going on in those societies. And, you know, they're, they're, those closed down. Various universities ran, from my understanding, seminars. And, and Fer- one of the organizers was at Fermilab, which is another big national laboratory like, like the one in Geneva. It's outside Chicago, Batavia, Illinois. And because of the pandemic, it had less of an impact than it would have otherwise. Because uh, you're absolutely right. These experiments, experiments that are ongoing need, in general, people there all the time, usually graduate students, uh, but not always. Uh, but most of these things, of course, uh, right now, pro- I suspect that the large, largest part of them are being run remotely, pre- precisely because of the pandemic. And w- it wasn't one of these things, as far as I know, that where people were uh, blackballed if they showed up, where they were, were, weren't allowed to show up. It was just recommended that to the greatest extent possible, all functions closed down, I assume, except essential functions. And instead, there'd be seminars and, and events. Unfortunately, what, what happened in a number of universities, and, and in fact, one of the ones I, I talk about in, in, the, in the article, is that some groups took advantage of that time to try and, and ultimately, in one case, get rid of a, a vice president of research. When I was back at McGill University doing my engineering work, I was often the only white person in the room among other grad students. And the reason was because uh, a lot of these grad students were from other countries. Mm-hmm. We had our own little United Nations there, uh, East Asia, the Middle East, uh, Africa. Yeah. They would often do their grad work at McGill and they would go back and become professors in their countries of origin. The idea that all of us would have like stayed home from our experimental work so that we could reflect on this stuff. like Many of these people couldn't wait to go home and start jobs as professors. And I think they would roll their eyes at the idea that they have to stay home for a day and, and not do their work. It's a little bit condescending, no? Oh, of course it is. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, it would have been interesting to be flying the wall in, in one of those rooms. And you're absolutely right. Right now, still, it's true. And one of the reasons the United, at least the United States functions so well in science is it brings the best young people from around the world to the United States. Still, it hasn't. that's changing, unfortunately, uh, due to various policies. But but. Uh, those people often come and, and, as you say, go back to their own country. Some, of course, stay and become the, the leaders of, of, of science here in the United States. But people from other countries, I think, would find it very 
unusual to see this happen and would not would not understand why it's happening. And and you're absolutely right. For most of the young scientists, they're what they're there. They want to do the science. One of the central themes of the piece you wrote for Quillette, which we just posted, is that merit should be the basis for hiring people and promoting them. And you're, you're more specific about that. You talk about how you want to get the most productive physicists. You use that term several times. This would have been, I think, a, a mainstream view until fairly recently. And I, I still think it is a mainstream view in, in the way many people think about the issue. But it has certainly become a stigmatized view. Do you expect to get a lot of blowback for this article? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought about that. And I think... I retired from my academic position, and I and I run a foundation now. And and uh, and I think if I were not retired and I was part of an academic institution right now, it'd be much harder for me to write this. Which is a sad statement because talking about these ideas in a, in a respectful way should be something that is the basis of what academia is all about. There will be blowback. You can already see from one of the examples I, I give in the, in, in the paper of, of a scientist, a Canadian scientist in this case, and, a, and a, as far as I know, a rather distinguished Canadian chemist, who basically said the same thing, basically said that merit should be the chief issue and it should be independent of any other aspects of human beings. And and he argued about uh, the, more specifically about affirmative action at universities. And his article, as you know, was removed and he was, he was uh, censured by the provost of his university. I suspect there will be blowback, but I think it's important to have this discussion. What so upsets me about this is how unscientific it is. And and that's why it's ironic that it's happening in the sciences. To accept a proposition like there's systemic racism and it's getting in the way, well, if that, that can be a hypothesis, but it needs to be a hypothesis that's examined and not just accepted on faith. The fact that questioning an implicit assumption is enough to get one blowback is of some concern, and I suspect that will happen. But I think it's important enough that one should talk about it anyway. Is it fair to say that the attitude among many in the sciences was that the fixation on identity politics and the taboos that were placed on discussing things like affirmative action, that there was a feeling that, well, okay, that's going on in the liberal arts, modern languages, but it's never going to come to sciences. In sciences, you know, we have gravity, we have two plus two equals four, we don't go in for that kind of thing. Yeah, oh, I think there's no doubt that the sciences, well, the sciences have often had a attitude towards these anyway, but that's maybe unfortunate. But the, you're absolutely right. People thought that it was more a property of fads, if you wish, in the humanities. One of the reasons being, and again, people may object to this, but I think scientists got the sense that issues of promotion and recognition were maybe less political in the sciences because Hard scientists have results that are less subject to interpretation. What's important in science is what uh, explains the way nature works, independent of, uh, you know, I mean, that's not to say there aren't fads in science, there certainly are. But I think the sense was that it was less of an issue because it was more objective. That, yeah, this was a fixation that was happening in, in the humanities. And I suspect many scientists are now surprised by this. I should say about myself, my own training this some and my my thoughts about this were influenced by now a friend but a teacher but Noam Chomsky when I was doing my PhD at MIT I, I audited his course in American foreign policy and one of the things that that struck me at the time and we've talked about many times since then is is how you might think the academic community would lead on, on various issues but often they follow they're often the first ones to buy into 
various things. And in, in the case of Vietnam, he points out that they were, in many cases, especially the, the academics involved in, in political science and things, were, were among the last people to recognize what he would have argued was the, the inappropriate nature, and he would have used stronger terms of the Vietnam War. And so for a long time, I've kind of recognized that well, this will even get more blowback. Academics are imperiled in many cases. They're subject to the administration. They're subject to, they're trying to preserve their own research area. They're worried about funding. They're worried about all sorts of things. And many academics go through much of their life basically trying to just protect their own ability to function. In some senses, scientists are more vulnerable because you could spend a couple of years researching Shakespeare for a couple hundred thousand dollars, but to run an engineering lab costs millions or tens of millions, and even a single set of experiments can, can cost millions of dollars. The funding is much more important in some ways, I guess. Let, let's talk about one other example that isn't in my article, but there's something called the 30-meter telescope, which was being built in Hawaii, which is, which is a, a landmark, one of the new large-scale telescopes that could really change our picture of the universe. And these are billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar projects. And Hawaii, where there's a can already a Canada-France-Hawaii telescope, by the way, up on the peaks in Hawaii, if you look around the world, some of the best viewing, if you're going to spend several billion dollars, this is where you want to build a telescope. And for for and these things, like large accelerators, these are 30-year projects. So it takes, you know, 10 or 20 years of engineering and also fundraising before the actual building happens. And the 30-meter telescope had gone through a lot of this. And now, of course, what's happened there was a complaint among indigenous people, some indigenous people in Hawaii, that this was a sacred mountain that the telescopes are on, and there are too many, and they're interfering with it. And what you've seen happen is not only a movement to basically categorize the 30-meter telescope as racist, uh, but you're seeing that there's a group of young scientists or, who, who bought into that, and, have, and, and that whole project now probably won't happen. That's a huge setback for science. This episode of the Quillette Podcast was brought to you by Gatsby, an options trading mobile platform that doesn't charge any trade commissions or per contract fees. Listeners who regularly invest in the stock market may think that options trading has to be complicated, but Gatsby makes trading options beautifully simple. Customers can even earn rewards points with every trade and redeem them for gift cards. Are you looking to make money when the stock market dips? Do you have an increased appetite for investment risk? By investing in options, you can implement investing strategies either for or against any public company or ETF. You can gain more leverage than through direct stock investment. And there's even a social component because you can use Gatsby's network function to follow your friends to see what they're trading on. Last month on Gatsby, people traded on Tesla, Slack, Delta Airlines, Carnival Cruise, Zoom, and Spy. Like the namesake character in F. Scott Fitzgerald's famous 1925 novel, Jay Gatsby, Options traders have an extraordinary gift for hope, but it's important to remember that options trading is risky by nature, and you can lose all your invested capital. Securities are offered through View Trade Securities Inc. See TryGatsby.com for a full list of disclosures and the complete fee schedule. Take advantage of our special offer just for Quillette listeners and get your first 2,000 rewards points on us by going to TryGatsby.com slash Quillette. That's T-R-Y-G-A-T-S-B-Y dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. And now, back to our podcast. As recently as just a few years ago, those same scientists would at least recognize that there's a debate to be had. 
science versus respecting the cultural concerns, and in many cases, quite legitimate cultural concerns of indigenous groups. You're right. They would have recognized that. The people who were involved in the 30-meter telescope, and I should say I'm not one of them, those issues have been, you know, they, they haven't been ignored, and 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 there's been great sensitivity there. But But like many things, and this is part of the problem, is once it's labeled as being racist or being whatever, then people don't read any of the details. Suddenly it becomes a causal ebb. And, and that's the concern, is that we should base our what we're doing on facts and not, and not rumors and not, you know, one thing that goes on social media suddenly turns something and then everyone jumps on that bandwagon. And, and, and of course, there should be debate and discussion. But what there shouldn't be is not just cancellation, but a condemnation without any open discussion. You're not some kind of, I don't know, creationist hayseed who's going off about all these scientists and their Black Lives Matter hashtags. <laughs> like there's one story that you told in your piece about the frustrations you had when you tried to hire a, a very skilled and promising black physicist from the Caribbean. And amazingly, <laughs> you couldn't do it. Because I, am I getting this right, that he was like the wrong kind of black person or something? This was when I was chairman of the Department of Case Western Reserve University in, in Cleveland. It's no different anywhere else, let me tell you. I have taught at many universities. He was actually an up-and-coming physicist in, in Illinois, and his wife had a job offer at Cleveland. It's a person who we, we'd have loved to have had. He would have literally raised the level of our department. But in order to, to get the university to go through his bureaucratic hoops and, and say we can argue that we can create a position that wasn't there before, you have to show that it increased diversity. But there are a set of diversity rules, and, and one was African-Americans. But it turns out a black physicist born in Tobago was, did not fulfill those requirements. And, and that just demonstrates that ultimately the bureaucratic rules that universities are using, in my mind, often are check marks. They're not really necessarily aimed at addressing issues as demonstrating that they're doing the quote-unquote right thing. And yeah, it's frustrating. And I think you see that. That's part of my other concern about what we've seen happen, is suddenly having a strike and uh, for black lives at a university. It's just it's just lip service. I mean, there, there's no doubt that there are deep problems of racism in the United States, and anyone who argues otherwise is just in a different world. But it's not going to make a difference that you ensure some quota of black physicists at Fermilab. My theory is that, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, is that there is a U-shaped pattern to this, where at one end of the socioeconomic spectrum, you have disadvantaged communities, especially black communities, that on a daily basis, they, they worry about not just racism, but potentially deadly racism. But then at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, you have highly privileged people running the Twitter accounts of large corporations or universities or their six-figure vice presidents in the Ivy League who are rending their garments. And then in the middle, you have often working-class people who, black, white, they go to work and they have friends and they get along and they, they find ways to, to overcome the occasional bigotries of life and the many other problems that people face you completely understand and sympathize with people at the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum who are powerless and are protesting and are right to protest because they're enduring this. But I'm much more skeptical of somebody who works at the Fermilab. They've done master's degrees. They've done PhDs. They've come from privileged backgrounds in some cases, though certainly not all cases. And they're just kind of like out of touch with the real problems of racism, which do exist. And then just once given a chance to promote this stuff on social media, they kind of go nuts because they're not connected to it? Uh, I, th I think that's a large part of it. I think you've got well-meaning people. On the whole, 
academic institutions include among the most enlightened cultures in society. And so they're well-meaning and they just, they, they haven't thought through the details. And, but then you have at the same time, these institutions that are built up in trying to ensure that they look like they're doing the right thing. And they find ways either by paying lip service or by, or by having quotas, or as I argue, by producing office after office after office that tries to claim to ensure diversity in one way or another. But yeah, I think they're really out of touch with what's going on. And in order to become in touch, you need an open discussion about this. No one asks the question, okay, what evidence is there of systemic racism? What evidence can you show us that this is going on at, at universities or, or in science departments in any way? Other than anecdotal evidence that, as I say, the anecdotal evidence that's often used is, well, in physics, there are fewer black physicists at Fermilab. And I try and argue that there, that is reflective perhaps of deep social issues, but not of racism, inherent racism in the science or in academia. You actually give a very personal account of this because it's not a big part of your article, but I think you mentioned in passing that your your scientific supervisor at one point at least uh, happened to be a black scientist. And I think this was in Boston. And that I think he, he mentioned in passing, you were considering moving to a neighborhood that I think was not considered friendly to black people. And, and he, he said something to you like, well, if you move there, I'm not going to visit you. So, you know, obviously you're conscious of the fact that many black scholars have to deal with racism in other aspects of their lives. Like many black people, especially in Boston, which which has a big, you know, anything about the city, it has a big history of racism. You just have to go see a Boston Red Sox game. Yeah, exactly. So in his case at MIT, it was a very hierarchical system and it was full of obnoxious people at the upper levels who were obnoxious to everyone, independent of, of race. <laughs> and, um, Colorblind obnoxiousness. And at the time, MIT had something very useful in the sense that there was a there was a mentorship system. There was a senior, another senior faculty member who was black who was mentoring postdocs who were mentoring graduate students. And, and in fact, some really good physicists, uh, uh, a friend of mine who's now, go, by the way, going, I think going to be the president of the American Physical Society, Jim Gates, who w- was there. And, and I remember I knew him as a postdoc and then later at Harvard. And, 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 and so that was great. And that's the kind of thing that is certainly great. And it happens more organically as more people come through the system. I'm fully aware uh, that one of the problems people claim, even if it isn't explicit, is that by being the only black or sometimes the only woman or whatever, you may feel in a either an undergraduate class or graduate class like you're different. And that makes it, for some people, difficult. And it's nice to have mentors who you can relate to. So I understand that. I like to think that in science, there are many other ways to relate to people. And sex and skin color are not the only things that you can use. And we should try and use all the ways we can relate, our, our common interests and, uh, and other things. Sort of another example of how that organically happened, which was much more explicit, not racism, but in this case, anti-Semitism, existed in physics profusely in, a, in America. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is, this is an amazing story you told. I had no idea. So I think even people who aren't in the sciences will know Richard Feynman, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah, right. And he's written books, and he's done a lot, not just, as I understand, as a theoretical physicist, but also as someone who has popularized many important and fascinating ideas in physics. And, you know, my father-in-law has, has read his books, and many people have become impassioned lay people in regard to physics because of Richard Feynman. Yeah. But you tell an amazing story about how he almost didn't get into grad school. Yeah, and they didn't even hide what they were saying. He, Yeah, he was the best undergraduate that had come out of MIT as his supervisor said, 
when they tried to write him a letter for for Princeton, which is where he did go to graduate school. And and they, Princeton basically said, um, hold on, isn't he Jewish? And, you know, we have we don't have rules against it, but, you know, we don't like to have too many, basically. And even even in their response, the, the MIT people who were recommending him said he's great and, he, and he's wonderful. But, you know, as far as his Jewishness, it's, you don't notice it. No, no, no. But you're, 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 the, the language is actually quite hilarious. The guy says it shows no trace of this characteristic which is basically saying he doesn't have a big nose. Physiognomy and manner. <laughs> it's the waspiest possible way of saying he can pass. Yeah, exactly. And that is shocking. I remember it was shocked me when I first learned about it. And, you know, there were a combination of factors that changed that. Well, one of the factors was that Feynman and, other, and, and a host of other Jewish physicists at the time, and by the way, at that period, what happened was American theoretical physics and some experimental physics became dominated by Jewish community, partly because of the influx of people, senior people who had been forced out because of the Nazis in Germany, but also because these these young people had access to education and skills that that allowed them to shine. And then once they sh- shined in in academia, they became the the elite. And then and then that that sort of anti-Semitism, at least explicit anti-Semitism, disappeared. If we really want to change the system and 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 provide equal opportunity. That opportunity doesn't rise at the postdoctoral level. That opportunity arrives with educating properly kids. And, and I give my experiences in Cleveland, where you see that you just see the real problems, that, that, that the real systemic, to some extent, racism, but also poverty that gets in the way of people even thinking about becoming scientists. And if we want to change, if we want to have more black scientists, and basically we want to have diversity, we want to have opportunity, diversity of opportunity. We want all people of talent to have the opportunity to shine. And, but that doesn't start at the highest levels. That has to start in the educational system where you allow all young people to shine. Well, you told a story in, in your piece about going to, to Cleveland public schools. When you were talking to them about being a scientist, they, they kind of had no idea, even the fact that they had to go on to get schooling beyond high school, like it, it was all very abstract for them, it sounds like. They had no sense of how to get from here to there in any way. They, they viewed it as a different world and a world from which, you know, that they may have never even thought about. But they, yeah, they didn't know what the process was. And kids would ask me, how do you become a scientist? It, it was heartbreaking to see... Uh, because it just was, it, it was, I, in some sense, it was never presumed that that would be something that they would be either capable of or interested in. And, and I found that so, so depressing. And they were, these were smart, these were, you know, we had fun. They loved the experiments we did and, and, and given the opportunity. And the teachers, by the way, were, were really good too. I mean, they tried really hard, but there was a system often not having the right, enough facilities and the networking. And, and, and there were, there's so many social sociological aspects that got in the way. I had a similar, you know, experience. It was heartwarming when I when I moved to, to Arizona. I ran, a, I had a big public event at an inner city high school in Phoenix, uh, which 20 young, 20 other high schools were, were shipped into. And I had six Nobel laureates. We had a public event and people thought, you know, this is gonna be crazy. And it ended up, the kids were went crazy. We went for two hours. It was like a it was like a, almost like a football game. They ate it up because they'd never, this was totally new to them. And they'd never had that opportunity to even ask questions, not just about physics for those who are interested in physics or science, but literally, what, how did you get to be, what, how did you get to be where you were and what did you do? Because they just didn't know. 
I don't know in Canada if it's run this way, but it's always struck me as incredibly crazy that schools are funded by local property taxes. No, they're not. That's not the situation in Canada. I mean, we have all sorts of other issues here, but that aspect of the issue is not nearly as acute. Yeah, it automatically ensures that people from areas which are poor, inner city areas, and don't have the property tax income are are almost, that's systemic. And whether you call it racism or something else, it's undoubtedly systemic and it's a problem that needs to be resolved. Well, in engineering terms, I'd call it a runaway, unstable, dynamical system because the, the lack of opportunities exacerbate, drives the system toward further extremes. We had a great piece by Jeffrey Flyer. We ran on Quillette a year ago. Jeffrey Flyer is the former dean of Harvard Medical School, endocrinologist. He wrote a great piece for us defending New York City's elite public high schools. And he talked about how, as a kid, this was one of the ultimate merit-based institutions. And there were lots of immigrant kids there, as there are now, who made names for themselves and propelled themselves into the academic elite. But that's now under fire. In New York City, there's the political campaign, it's been underway for a few years now, to at least lessen the influence of testing and merit. Yeah. On the other hand, some of these proposals will result in admitting a more diverse group of students. Where do you stand on that? In the case of Jeffrey Flyer, he was focusing in particular on a school in the Bronx that was science-oriented. Yeah, well, actually, I, I, the Bronx High School of Science was one where both uh, Steven Weinberg and Shelley Glashow, who won the Nobel Prize, I referred to, went, went there. And so did my friend, by the way, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a well-known black physicist. And, you know, it's a complicated issue, of course when it comes to public schools, it's a difficult situation. I think, you know, you have to look at the funding, but if something works, if the system works, you don't want to break it. So what clearly works is the Bronx High School of Science has provided an avenue to, for exceptional people. And I know tons of people from New York who've gone through there. The question is what's, whether it's self-fulfilling or not. Would they, have, would they have excelled wherever they went? I often feel when I, as a teacher, I'm pretty humble about this. I, I tend to think that the best students don't really need teachers in some sense. They just, well, they need encouragement and, and they'll thrive no matter what. I also am sometimes worried about the criteria by which we evaluate what's talent and what isn't. When, you know, when I was at Yale, taught at Yale, I remember Yale undergraduates, and I'd often think that, you know, the, having the, all these 1600 SAT kids, I taught at a bunch of other universities and I tended to think that almost randomly selecting them would produce the same same quality at some level, except for the except for the tales of the distribution, you know, the uh, unbelievably excellent students. So it's this problem. You want to encourage talent. And if you can do it by having schools where talented people can thrive and be surrounded by other talented people and, and, and achieve their best where they might not be able to achieve their best in a different situation, you don't want to get rid of that. And it may seem like elite, but at some level, Certainly academia is a meritocracy and not a democracy, and that's a good thing. And now a message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, the online counseling service that helps people everywhere become happier and more productive. At BetterHelp.com, you'll connect with your professional licensed therapist in a safe, private, online environment according to your own schedule using secure video, phone, online chat, or text. Anything you share is, of course, strictly confidential. While BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, new clients can start communicating with their counselor in under 24 hours. When self-help methods aren't enough and you seek professional counseling, BetterHelp can connect you to a network of thousands of licensed therapists. 
and you can switch therapists to make sure you get the right fit. Licensed counselors include specialists in sleep, trauma, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. So many people are using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 U.S. states. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. There's no awkward waiting room, and you can message your BetterHelp counselor at any time. Financial aid is available in some cases. Join over 1 million others who are taking charge of their mental health by visiting BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, dot com. Quillette listeners get 10% off their first month service with the discount code Quillette. Just go to betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. I want to talk about the inner intellectual life of a scientist in this day and age because... Because I've been writing about COVID-19, I'm on a lot of mailing lists for Nature and Science and JAMA, many of these scientific publications. And it was definitely true that all of them had this flurry of Black Lives Matter themed email blasts. And, And even in some cases, they had articles that touched on this for a period of a few weeks. And now that's dying down and they're going back to bread and butter science. It feels like to be a scientist now, your day-to-day life is you're doing experiments, you're publishing work, you're judging your colleagues on the basis of merit, just like you always were. But then in terms of your public posture, you have to talk about other things. Do you think that a lot of scientists, including a lot of academic scientists, now have to live in two worlds? One is 99% of their time is spent doing actual science, and that really hasn't changed much. And then the 1%, which is the public-facing aspect, is it's almost like a PR thing that, that stands apart from their actual day-to-day work? Yes, to some extent. I think it's actually worse. It would be great if they could spend 99% of their time in their work, but it's less and less because... Now, to get grants and, and, you know, the kind of things you need to do your work, you still have to jump through these hoops if you're a scientist and, and, well, almost any academic at a level. You're being forced to provide statements on these social issues that are basically, again, check the boxes. I'm a, I've been a scientific communicator for many years because I, I like to do it and I think it's important and some people should do it. But I don't think that every scientist should be forced to, to do outreach. Sometimes, you know, in fact, as I often say, jokingly, some I, the best thing we can do is keep some of my colleagues away from the public. Yet, in many grant applications now, and I've seen it in, at, at, at some level in the proposals you write to become an assistant professor, you have to have an outreach component of your proposal. What people do is then they pay lip service. They find the right, uh, the ones who, who do it well enough to get the job. And, and what they may do is come up with several inventive schemes for outreach. They almost never get implemented when when they when they be, when they get the job, but they they have to pass through those hoops. As I say, I, I hope everyone is works against racism in their in their daily lives. It's something that we should all aspire to. But actively working against racism should not be the job requirement of someone who's doing theoretical physics. And that may sound racist. And and some people would say, as as I argue, a well known academic and writer has argued, you either are anti racist or racist, and you can't be anything else. And and that allows me to go back to something else you said that I meant to, to comment on, being an unstable equilibrium or destabilizing situation. It is precisely destabilizing because this systemic inequities that exist in our society cause anger and cause the kind of protests we're seeing and cause people to respond viscerally when they see things like George Floyd. And it's completely understandable. But one of the side aspects of this, which is unfortunate in almost every time there have been protests on anything, is that... Immediately then, almost everything gets labeled 
as evil unless the people who are involved in it don't condemn what's going on. It was like that in the McCarthy era. The sense that I think institutions and individuals are experiencing is unless they vocally come out and condemn it and pay that lip service, unless they do that, they're somehow viewed as part of the problem. And things that are would otherwise be honest academic activities are also labeled as racist because at this point, the anger and the inequity is so bad that you look for anything that might smack of potentially being racist. This idea that you are either racist or anti-racist, as soon as I heard people talking about that, it, what it made me think of is when George W. Bush, after 9-11, said, you're either with, with us or against us. And, you know, you mentioned being in Noam Chomsky's class on foreign policy. You don't have to be a Chomskyite to think that it's ridiculous to think that you either have to wave the American flag and bake apple pies for the troops or you're in league with the terrorists. And conservative reactionaries have often rightly been accused of that kind of jingoism. And to see that kind of idea embraced on the left, it's like, you know, you're either pregnant or you hate pregnant people. Like, this is absolute nonsense. I get a daily email from Nature about science, and they quote an article about how to be an anti-racist in the laboratory. <laughs> well, <laughs> I got this set of instructions from some local pedagogical organization here in Ontario, and it was about how to be a good ally to black people in your organization. And it told me to keep repeating their name in public. So it said, when the person isn't around, you should just keep talking about how great they are and saying their name. Just imagine how mortifying this would be if anyone actually took this seriously. Well, I saw Bill today. Bill is an excellent worker. I wish Bill were here so we could bounce these ideas off Bill. Oh, look, here comes Bill. We love Bill. Like, the old days, we would have called that patronizing. <laughs> well, it's beyond patronizing, but you know that if a person is successful and intelligent enough to lead an organization that would send this stuff out, that they're also smart enough that never in a million years would they actually do the thing they're recommending. Yeah. Because if they did it, the first person to call them out on it would be Bill. Exactly. Who would be trying to get his work done and say, why are you acting like some 15-year-old on Instagram? And it's demeaning for two reasons. It's not only demeaning the individual, and it's ridiculous and stupid, and you're right, Bill would be the first person to come out against it. But then what, unfortunately, it's a different thing than racism, but it, it, it inevitably ends up having the same effect. Because later on, if Bill does a good thing, Bill's colleagues are going to wonder whether it was whether it was the good thing or the fact that Bill was being called out because he's black. That undermines Bill in a way, in a way which you, you could say is racism. I'd like to leave podcast listeners with, with news they can use. Some of the people listening to this are going to be in their late teens, early 20s. They're making decisions about university, grad school, technical college. Should they avoid being on social media? Are there some programs they should avoid? If you're at the bottom rung, you know, grad student or technician or, or whatever, and like you have no power, it's not someone like you who can speak his mind after a long career, what can they do? When people claim I have power, I'm not sure I have any power. But um, well, you do. You have the power to speak your mind. And I, I used to as a graduate student. The difference was no one would listen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's I ha always hesitate to give advice because everyone's situation is is different. I still believe in my heart that if you have talent and you exhibit that talent and you work hard in science and you work do what you can, that will allow you to get ahead. And I, well, I'm political as an individual, and I'm also interested in communication, so I do those things. But if you don't have those interests, don't be obliged. You, you, you know, you, you focus on what you're doing. And when you do what you do better than other people, you have a better than even chance of succeeding.
That doesn't mean that you don't have to learn how to play the game at some level, but focus on what interests you, do it well and enjoy it. And, it, and then that's the other thing. I ultimately think that if you enjoy what you're doing, that's infectious and it'll communicate to others. I know it sounds like a platitude, but it is what it is. I think that's good advice. I certainly enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, me too. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.